Good evening, and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. You were just listening to Marisol on Consabor Latino, and I'm happy you're with us. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host for tonight. Now, while I try to bring you voices from a diverse range of people, I also do want to spend time addressing issues that plague our city and our country and even our world, whether it's climate change, as we did here on City Watch throughout September, or homelessness, which is an issue very much in the news today, or inequality. And today we're going to be talking about mental health. Uh, that's going to be the theme of our show. If you've been following the news here in New York City, a 24-year-old man has been charged with four counts of murder and one count of attempted murder for brutally beating and killing four homeless men and severely injuring another in Chinatown starting at around 2 a.m. yesterday morning. And reports noted that he may be suffering from mental illness. Um, and the reports also indicated that residents were raising concerns about a number of people with mental illness living on the street and in the area, and, they, and indicating that they'd been asking the city for help. So we're going to talk a little about that uh, with our guests today. Uh, as I had been uh, mentioning about the, uh, the uh, 24-year-old man who'd been arrested, uh, Carlina Rivera, a council member for the Lower East Side, and she represents that area, had said that the murders, uh, according to her quotes on the New York Times that just went up a short while ago, the murder should serve as an alert uh, to city officials that they need to find new ways to curb homelessness and also treat mental illness. And I want to just read you her quote. It's evident that we failed as a city at building deeply affordable housing, how we provide mental health services. We have to do better. We cannot treat this as business as usual, and we need a comprehensive plan. So today's show is a timely reminder of what services are out there and what can be done to provide more assistance to those either dealing with mental illness directly or perhaps uh, people who know who have a friend or a family member or a coworker who may be struggling with uh, mental illness. Um, one staggering statistic that I had seen in, in, in researching this over the last week is that um, more than a third of people in our homeless shelter system here in New York City have a serious mental illness, and that's uh, close to 40% of those who are living on the street, um, a quarter of the 230,000 veterans who live in New York, and that's one out of uh, four of them, have a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and or uh, suffer from depression. And the other statistic when it comes to mental illness that's been highlighted by the city is that a fifth of mothers uh, who are in the low-income bracket and develop symptoms of depression after pregnancy, and that in New York City alone, at least one in five New Yorkers is likely to experience a, 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 some form of mental illness in any given year, and more than half of the adults living with mental illness reported not even being able to access uh, the treatment that they might need. And these are the types of gaps that too often can lead to, to long-term suffering for people um, and those around them, uh, those people who care about them. The reason I wanted to do this this week is that later on, this Thursday, uh, is World Mental Health Day, and that uh, is a day that endeavors to raise awareness of mental health issues around the world and to mobilize efforts in support of mental health. Uh, and this year, uh, World Mental Health is focused on suicide prevention. So we're going to talk a little about that uh, with our first guest who will be up in a few minutes. Uh, we're, uh, he'll be calling in. The, oh, and we've got him on the line. Great. Our first guest is New York City Council Member Donovan Richards, who I actually uh, saw this morning in a street co-naming. Uh, he is a lifelong resident of Southeast Queen, Queens and the Rockaways, first elected to the city council in 2013. And last year, he began his second term on the council by being named chair of the Committee on Public Safety. 
And that ties back to his initial motivation for getting into politics. Uh, he had lost a childhood friend to gun violence. And as chair of this committee, he recently proposed a new measure to address concerns about suicides among the uh, members of the NYPD. Councilman, welcome to City Watch. Thank you. Good evening. How's it going today? It's great to see you earlier and uh, glad to be on the show this evening to talk about such a delicate and um, important subject and, uh, today. And this so far this year, according to reports, nine members of the police department, and it's usually an average of five per year, but nine this year uh, have committed suicide. Can you talk a little about what prompted your legislation and what it would do? Well, this is, uh, this is an epidemic of, 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 a, of a big magnitude, and we wanted to do everything we can do in our power working with the police department to figure out ways to shed stigma around mental health. Uh, you know, I was driving home uh, last month sometime when an officer uh, who lived up the block from me actually committed suicide, and I literally drove into the scene unexpectedly so I was at the scene and it sort of never leaves uh, your memory so one of the things we're, we're trying to do is to really enable members of service to feel comfortable going out there to get services so the bill uh, intro 1704 enables us to provide clinicians and mental health support services to every precinct in New York City and when you talk about the price tag associated with that, you know, it's been spoken of uh, that it could cost upwards of a little bit over $100 million or so. There's no price tag you can put on this, you know. I mean, these are members of service who go out every day who are dealing with um, many situations that, um, unfortunately, have them encountering a lot of trauma. You know, you show up to the hospital after the death of officers, and you... You can feel the tension, you can feel the pain of officers, and, and in my position as public safety chair, I've had to do that, and you never know how far a hug will go, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that every member of service knows that there are services there, and really this has to become the new norm. Getting services, mental health services, should not be something that is looked upon as uh, problematic in the department, and right now it is, because a lot of officers that we speak to uh, don't trust uh, the upper echelons of the department because they feel that they'll lose their jobs if they do go out there and get those services. So one of the things we're trying to do through this legislation, which is by no means a perfect fix, is to just try to make it a norm within the department for our officers to get the services they need and not feel like they'll be intimidated or be taken out of the department because they go out there for services. And this would not just be for police officers, but anyone within the NYPD? Yes, yes. And, you know, one thing we've heard working, and, you know, we've done a lot of <laughs> work talking to a little bit of everyone. So there are organizations like PAPA, which are peer-led uh, organizations that right now uh, offer members of service services and we've heard a lot about the lack of resources being put there so this we have to attack this on several fronts we have to make sure that when people show up to work that they know there are services for them available 
but two, we have to make sure that the resources are being poured in. What's happened and what I feel has happened is that this thing has spiraled out of control because for decades we've dealt with the department um, that largely operates around machoism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to shed machoism at this moment and really get out there, enable our officers to get out there and talk about the things that they see once again. They are dealing with traumatic situations each and every day of the week, and we need to make sure that if they need access to a clinician, that they have a a trusted clinician, a a trusted social worker that they can go to every day to get services, someone that they can build that trust with um, that will enable them to get the services they need. What's been the response from the NYPD so far to this? Well, we've been working on this uh, a, a few months now. And I want to commend first the NYPD for, for really taking this seriously. And, you know, the police commissioner has been such a committed partner to this process. So they support the legislation, which is, which is a first step, you know, because sometimes it, it's complicated being a legislator because sometimes the NYPD may look at it as, well, do we need these outward voices? Uh, or people not in the department dictating policy to us. But at the end of the day, we all have an obligation to make a difference here, to work together to stem the stigma around uh, suicides. And this is big, because if the police department, the New York City Police Department leads on this issue, it has national implications. And that is why this is such an important initiative uh, to enable every single precinct in New York City to have access to trusted clinicians for members of service. You know, I think about Mayor de Blasio and how he has trumpeted with the First Lady, uh, the Thrive Program, and yet, you know, that's been going through my mind in the last 24 hours, given what we have witnessed take uh, that has taken place in Chinatown uh, with the 24-year-old man that has been charged with brutally murdering four homeless people and severely injuring another one, and that uh, folks have said uh, that the homelessness problem has developed uh, significantly in that area. And, and I'm just wondering if you think the city is doing enough to connect with people, not just members of the NYPD, but you know the, the larger you know, um, population in New York City, those people who are confronting mental illness issues? The answer is no. I mean, we are so far behind where we need to be. The resources not, have not necessarily reached the pockets of communities that it's needed to for a very long time. Uh, I want to commend the commissioner again because we've been working for over a year and a half on some um, recommendations that I anticipate will come out shortly on how do we address this systematic issue that has evolved so drastically uh, over the course of the last few, over the last decade nearly. It's just we have not addressed this issue. We've let it linger for so long. You know, someone, uh, a gentleman who was killed by the name of Saeed Basu comes to mind in Brooklyn. You know, the community knew he needed services. Unfortunately, there were members of the department who showed up who did not know he needed services, and unfortunately, he met his demise for that reason. We need to make sure that there are resources in every corner of this city. And right now what we're seeing is, you know, people will call the NYPD and report a homeless individual 
uh, sleeping on the floor or menacing, and that individual is put in an ambulance and shipped off to the hospital, and there's no follow-up after that. So one of the things that we are trying to address and change through some of these recommendations that I anticipate will come out is more follow-up. You know, the police department should know who these individuals are by now, especially in light of neighborhood policing. So they should know who's in the neighborhood. They should know um, what their needs are and be able to pass them off to nonprofit partners or CBOs to do follow-up to make sure that they are getting the services that they need. So this is a national conversation, and I'm, I'm just so happy that finally this is rising to the point where we can all talk about it because we all can use services, right? I mean, all of us go through trauma in our lives. And this conversation around trauma and, um, and mental health needs to um, be at the forefront of everything we do. When you talk about 30,000 children sleeping in homeless shelters tonight, do you not think that that will have impacts on these children in the long term? This is why we fought very hard with my colleague Mark Traeger to ensure that there were 200 social workers and clinicians put into our schools. But even that's just the tip of the iceberg. We need to make sure that we have mental health professionals and social workers and clinicians at every facet, for even workers at ACS, you know, who are dealing with trauma as well. Every agency in the city of New York uh, needs to do this uh, and needs to have access to resources. And it has to be, once again, trusted. You know, one of the things I'm happy the NYPD recently did um, in one of their policy changes was to not, they're now saying they're not going to remove when, when officers or members of service go for services, they're not going to take their badge away. Think about that for a second. They were taking their guns and their badge. You know, you're going to spiral into a deeper depression if you are in the department and you've given your all and all of a sudden everything is taken away from you and, and the perception of your job is taken away from you. So these are just some minor steps we can take to make sure that confidentiality, which is a big issue, but also that if people go for services, they know that their jobs will not be threatened, their livelihood will not be threatened, I think has to be something that the police department continues to build uh, with their members of service. So since we have you uh, today, I did want to ask about an, uh, another topic or two. The mayor's borough-based jails plan, uh, one of the uh, uh, locations under consideration is in Kew Gardens. There have been concerns that are raised that uh, by having these borough-based uh, facilities, it may give ICE officers more uh, uh, chances to track or detain undocumented immigrants who are jailed. What's your view on that and also on the overall plan? Well, let me say this. Right now, I don't know much about the plan. I mean, there needs to be more specifics um, given to us because this is not about, this should not be about just painting uh, new, putting new windows in, uh, painting a newer facility. This has to be about what is being done differently. We can't rearrange the, the seats on a, on, a, on a sinking ship here and think that we are doing something different here. One of the things that I have major concerns about is around programming. I visited Rikers last summer just to get a, 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 a good grasp of what is going on there. And uh, Correction tried to bring me to one of the nicest units. And, uh, and I said, no, I want to go to where no one goes. 
So when I went up to speak to many of those young men and women there, they spoke of the need for more programming. They spoke of the need for a better law library. They spoke of the need of vocational training because many of them want to be on the path to not coming back to Rikers Island. And right now I have not seen any hint of a significant investment by the administration to make sure that we can really rehabilitate many individuals who, who are on Rikers as we speak. Obviously, I'm working very closely with my colleague, Karen Kostowitz. There's concerns around height, but there has to be more details fleshed out and given to the public and given to the council on what these jails are going to look like. Um, but I, I, I just want to say this. As someone who has family members, who has grown up with friends who've done time on Rikers Island, uh, they will tell you, you never come home the same after you do time on Rikers Island. And for anyone out there who thinks that keeping Rikers open is an option, I, I, I don't know how, how, how we could keep Rikers open. However, I do want to say, and just put on the record, that there does need to be more details fleshed out, um, you know, before, we, we, before they get my vote, at least I can say, because I need to see a real uh, commitment to making sure that these institutions are going to look much different than what, what Rikers looks like now. This can't be, once again, about um, changing facilities just to change facilities. It has to look different. It has to feel different. And it needs to be a real commitment. If we're saying we're, um, we're trying to address the new Jim Crow, which is mass incarceration, then let's invest in these individuals. Um, so that they are not back at Rikers Island again. So um, we've got just about two minutes left. And when I had originally reached out to your office uh, to book you on the show, it was to talk about uh, the legislation. But in the last few days, you also made a big announcement that I think I should be addressing also. Talk to our listeners about your big announcement, what you're going to be pursuing, and will mental illness also be one of the signature issues that you focus on? Obviously, uh, for those who don't know, that I, I, I did announce that I'm going to run uh, for Queensborough president, and very happy to also have been endorsed on, at the, on the onset uh, by the first female woman uh, borough president, Claire Shulman. And I, I see the borough president's office as a real continuation of much of the work that we've done already in Queens. You know, when you talk about infrastructure, $2.2 billion we've secured for Queens, when you talk about the need for affordable housing, um, in which we brought thousands of units online, billions of dollars for public housing in the Rockaways, a new precinct coming into southeast Queens, into my district in Rosedale, which will be the 116th precinct. And the work we've done around public safety, which is critical, absolutely, mental health services should be one of the big, biggest budget priorities that we have uh, moving forward. We need to make sure that we are supporting um, CBOs who are doing a lot of this work. And one of the areas that I'm most interested in focusing in is on the Cure Violence Crisis Management System which enables us to go in and work with many of our individuals who've had interactions with the justice system um, where we can pour in some money for mental health services. But you've got to look at what, why are we here, you know? Much of it has to do with systematic barriers in education, uh, systematic issues when it comes to housing, job opportunities. 
it's a systematic issue that has really helped this thing to spiral out of control for communities. When you look at majority of the individuals on Rikers Island who um, unfortunately need mental health or mental health crises, you know, this has stemmed from when they were younger. So we have to address the systematic issues that have really um, kept a lot of our young people in the system and make sure that we're pouring those resources into pockets of Queens that have historically not seen the investment that they need. Um, so absolutely, you know, mental health crises, but also just looking at equity, period, in this conversation. How do we shape and use that office to really touch pockets of Queens that have, feel, have felt left behind um, for decades is how I intend on running the borough president's office. Councilman Richards, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. How can people learn more about you and your work? You could always go to our city council website, which is council.nyc.gov, and uh, you could look for Donovan Richards. And then we obviously just launched our uh, campaign website, which is richardsforqueens.com. So you can go on there. But we are an open book. You can reach out to us uh, by email as well. D as in Donovan, Richards at council.nyc.gov with any concerns. And once again, we pride ourselves on being transparent. And even when we don't agree on every facet of a plan, um, you know, we always want to hear all sides of the story before uh, we make a decision. So want the public to know that. Councilman Richards, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much. Enjoy your evening. So in a moment, we're going to get to our next guest, but I would be remiss if I did not bring up before we get to him that uh, I want to thank our BAI listeners for staying with the show and for staying with BAI. If you've been a longtime listener or even a new listener, I hope you enjoy the diversity of the programming. Um, you know, I've been a longtime listener and just have been working here, volunteering here for uh, a little over a year and a few months, um, and I've been happy and proud to be what's known as a BAI buddy. Um, that is where I had uh, signed up online and I just make a monthly recurring donation to BAI because, I mean, I'm sure you know, but in case you don't, if you're new to us, we are non-corporate, non-commercial, supported by our listeners. And that's why I feel it's important uh, for me uh, volunteering here and being part of this community uh, to support BAI, to help uh prepare and provide this wonderful programming to you. So if you are listening and you can become a BAI buddy tonight, I do have a special offer for you. If you call up in the name of City Watch and you say you're calling for City Watch, we'll give you uh, a copy of a book. I've lined up 10 copies of this book called uh, Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. And if you become a BAI buddy and mention City Watch, we will send you one of these copies. And in fact, um, this book is amazing, but I don't want to even tell you much more about it now because next Sunday I'm going to have uh, one of the authors and one of the essayists here in studio talking about uh, the book Waging Peace in Vietnam. The number to call is 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. You can also go online and pledge and become a BAI buddy at give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, give to WBAI.org. 
And if you're on your cell phone, you can also just text WBAI to 41444. That's the easiest way. Text WBAI to 41444. Now we're going to bring on our next guest. Um, great. And then after our next guest, we're going to come to the news. But our next guest is David Woodlock, president and CEO of the Institute for Community Living, or ICL. And that helps people with men, living with mental illness, substance use, and developmental disabilities live healthier and more fulfilling lives through residential and community-based services in more than 100 programs across New York City. Welcome to WBAI. Pleasure to be with you, Jeff. And let me put in a plug. I think City Watch is a great program, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I find it difficult to accept praise, so thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to criticism. Uh, anyway, before I, I gave a, just a brief synopsis of what ICL does, but can you talk a little more broadly about the types, the range of services and programs you provide? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's uh, ICL really provides a wide array of both health and human services for people with emotional challenges and people who are really living very complicated lives. It's civilians and veterans, it's young people and not so young people, treatment services, support services, housing, and through partnerships, uh, really high quality health care. We take care of about uh, 10,000 people a year, and as you mentioned, uh, in all five boroughs, about 2,500 people spend the night with us at the end of uh, each day. Uh, and it's really an exceptional group of people that are very focused on people uh, actually getting better in their lives, really improving their lives, not just their symptoms. Tell me about uh, what's uh, the hub. Sure. Um, if I can, let me let me tell you a little bit about uh, where the, the hub is located. Um and, uh, and why the hub evolved, particularly in that area. Uh, you may know the Brownsville and East New York area uh, ends up showing up uh, in, in most of the deleterious kind of health indicators across the city on pretty close to the, uh, the top of the list in so many of the, uh, of the indicators. Uh, Brownsville has the highest rate of premature death, for instance, in the city, and East New York isn't, isn't far behind. Um, both have extremely high rates of psychiatric hospitalization. Uh, and as we know, people with some form of mental illness, for instance, are twice as likely to have two or more chronic health conditions uh, than the rest of us. So we, we really set out to, to learn from people in that community what they felt like they needed to turn around some of those kinds of indicators. And probably over an 18 to 24-month period met with uh, Oh, probably two, 250 people, uh, really of all walks of life there, uh, to try and get a better sense of what it was uh, that they were really feeling like they, they needed to get better. And what emerged from a lot of those um, uh, discussions was really this idea of, of whole health care. Because what we know, um, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a highly respected uh, research organization, uh, has shown time and time again that actual health care provision, the sort of doctoring, if you will, really only accounts for about 10% of the outcomes that people have. It's uh, m much more driven by individual people's behaviors and by the social uh, indicators and environment they live in. So we really try to incorporate all those things into a new physical site that's there in that uh, in that block uh, and really a new kind of care. And, and you mentioned the, the, the whole person. Can you talk a little more about the whole person approach to health care? 
Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, we we know and have known for, uh, frankly, a very long time that um, there are a lot of other things that influence um, whether or not people um, uh, get sick or, or ill in life and have chronic uh, diseases. We know particularly that for people with serious mental illnesses, that they die, depending on the research that you read, somewhere between 10 and 25 years earlier than the rest of us from otherwise preventable chronic diseases. That, uh, that, that's a, a, a really a terrible statistic, it seems to me. And I'm not sure that if you look at that set of data and you look at the kind of broader indicators from uh, areas, um, not just in New York City, but across the country, that are highly distressed communities, you see a kind of a parallel between the two. So from our point of view, and I worked in government for many years, so we know that government is structured in sort of the buckets of our lives, you know, the parts of our lives. You have the Office of Mental Health. You have the Office of Substance Abuse. You have the, the Department of Health. So we don't experience our lives that way, and the more complicated our lives get, the more it broaches the boundaries of those sort of arbitrary uh, or governmental structures. So I think what we're really trying to do there is say rather than uh, being in these siloed environments with a, a sense of uh, funding and regulations and sort of mission that's narrowly defined in one of those buckets, turn that on its ear, really, and say, how do we take care of these multiplicity of needs that people that live in communities like East New York and Brownsville have and come to us with, and do that in a way that works for them rather than works for the provider? It's uh, one of the terms that's thrown around a lot these days is person-centered care. Um, very easy words to use. Sounds like the most logical thing in the world. Like, uh, what other? Where else would you be focused on other than the person, the patient? Well, the truth is, from the regulations and funding, we end up being uh, too often in our industry focused on meeting those regulatory and funding requirements uh, as we are about um, actually getting people better. So. Whole health care, in, in, uh, in my way of thinking, is really um, understanding and knowing the kinds of things that influence people's behavior. If, if in fact, as I mentioned earlier, 40% of our poor health outcomes come from individual behavior, how do we begin to think about what are the things that influence people's behavior and w why they make some of the choices that they do in life um, to drink too much, to continue smoking, um, more often than not to help them get through a, a difficult day. Um, integrated care, you know, it, it is such uh, a, a silly, uh, in, at the end of the day, kind of thinking that somehow our physical body and our physical well-being is, is disconnected from, uh, from our emotions and how we're, we're thinking about life. Uh, you can't really treat somebody from the neck up or the neck down. You're treating the whole person. Uh, and how they're uh, feeling and thinking and what they're doing to get through the day influences their health outcomes. So um, being aware of traumatic experiences in people's lives, thinking about integrated care, and one of the um, interesting things that's emerging in healthcare reform the last few years is this uh, new phrase that's called the social determinants of health, which are really means all of those other things other than the doctoring that uh, that influence health outcomes. And those are things like 
not enough to eat, um, mold in your apartment, uh, a myriad of other things, um, not just not enough to eat, but maybe no access to healthy foods or, or, uh, or a historical familial context to, to how to cook healthier foods rather than um, uh, just eat uh, McDonald's all the time, for instance. Um, so I think we've really tried to put all of those things together in one place uh, that's easy to, to, to get to. You know, a mom coming to get her um, relatively newborn uh, their their uh, vaccinations. She can also get whatever kind of health care she needs. Uh, if she needs family support um, to to uh, make uh, life work better for her and make sure she's got all the resources uh, that she needs to take care of her uh, her baby. Um, uh, we have a family support program, ten mental health programs, case management, and really a prenatal through geriatric care. Uh, health center, right, in, uh, all co-located in the hub, and all of those distinctions, we try like crazy uh, to make all those uh, individual programmatic distinctions really invisible to the patients that come through the door. So uh, my last guest, uh, Councilman uh, Donovan Richards, talked about uh, uh, stigma within the NYPD. How do you destigmatize? We've just got a few minutes left, but I really want to get to the heart of it. How do you dig destigmatize mental health care? Excuse me, mental health care, and get people into treatment? Right. Well, it's a great question and one that a lot of smart people have been working on for uh, for generations. Um, I, I think it. I think. The drivers of it have a lot of drivers, and the solutions need to have a lot of drivers. I think uh, on the positive side, I think you see more uh, celebrities and sports heroes and people like that talking more and more today uh, about mental health challenges than you ever saw uh, before, and I think that's a very, very positive sign. Uh, I think like we're trying to do at the Hub, making mental health care um, an equivalent kind of experience to going to your doctor for the flu um, and tying it really to health care uh, is an enormous value because people don't feel funny about talking to their doctor about some pretty private things. Um, so why not mental health-related kinds of things? And it's really that historical stigma that, that inhibits that, not, uh, not really the care. Um, and I think, lastly, there you know there are cultural differences uh, in in um, in the experience of trauma, and we know from a lot of research that, particularly um, uh, individuals who identify as African American, have extremely high um, sense of taboo about accessing behavioral health care, uh, in particular. So we've made a real concerted effort to engage the uh, African American clergy. Uh, in East New York and uh, in that Brownsville area, uh, in an attempt that I that I hope we've earned uh, to become a, a, a blessed partner, that, a trusted partner to the African American community, where they know uh, if they uh, go to the hub for their care, uh, they'll get good care, they'll get trusted care, and they'll get better. Uh, David Woodlock, I want to thank you. I wish I had more time with you, but before you go, can you please let our listeners know how they can learn more about ICL? Absolutely. You can go uh, on the Internet and, uh, and uh, Google or LinkedIn or any one of those social media options, the Institute for Community Living, which is what ICL stands for. Um, and uh, we've got a great website that would uh, be happy to give you all the information you might need. David Woodlock, thanks for joining me here on WBAI Today. My pleasure.
Take care. Thank you. So we're going to go to our next guest in a few moments. But before that, I would like to uh, try once again. We're going to bring up Celeste Katz's news segment, the news of the day. Thanks, Jeff. North Korea broke off nuclear talks with the United States and Sweden this weekend, saying the conversation, quote, disappointed us greatly. After the first serious diplomatic discussions since President Donald Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un met face-to-face in June, a North Korean representative said, quote, the negotiations have not fulfilled our expectation. A State Department spokeswoman, however, characterized the meetings as good and said relations between the U.S. and North Korea wouldn't be normalized in a single day. In national news, a second whistleblower has come forward with information about President Donald Trump's dealings with Ukraine. ABC News reports that the agent is represented by the same law firm as the first whistleblower and has firsthand knowledge of Trump's conversations. The president became the subject of an impeachment inquiry after reports alleging that he asked the president of Ukraine, a major beneficiary of U.S. military aid, to do him a, quote, favor and investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. Trump has denied any wrongdoing, as has Biden. Separately, the Supreme Court convenes this week in a term that will see it consider hot-button issues including abortion, whether it's legal to fire someone because of gender or sexual orientation, and the DREAM Act, which shields immigrants brought into the U.S. as children. This is also the start of Mental Illness Awareness Week. According to federal estimates compiled by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, about one in five U.S. adults experience some kind of issue each year, as do one in six children ages 6 through 17. Just over 43% of adults with a mental health issue received treatment in 2018. That same year, more than 13% of adults with serious problems had no health coverage. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. And finally, in local news, a 24-year-old man has been charged in the beating deaths of four homeless men in Chinatown. Randy Rodriguez Santos was charged Sunday with murder, attempted murder, and possession of marijuana, NBC News reported. Witnesses to the beatings told police the victims were repeatedly hit in the head with a metal object. It was not immediately clear if Santos had a lawyer. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz. And now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thanks, Celeste. And that brings me to our final guest today, uh, Justin Barron, Director of Community Engagement Services at Community Access, where he oversees advocacy and education programs. Uh, Too often the people uh, that uh, uh, organizations like Community Access Serves have been left out or shut out and seen as undeserving of the opportunity to build or even rebuild their lives And an organization like Community Access has a range of programs like housing and education, job training, crisis services, and much more uh, that help people uh, through some of the most challenging times of their life. But also each fall, uh, Community Access hosts what's known as a mental health film festival uh, that a few of my colleagues have uh, attended over the years. And I thought it would be good to have uh, Justin on to talk a little about that and the work that Community Access does. Justin, welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much for having me. So talk a little about the origins of the Mental Health Film Festival. So the Mental Health Film Festival is uh, a project of Community Access. As you mentioned, uh, Community Access is a mental health nonprofit. It's been around in New York City since the 70s and specializes in providing housing primarily. They have over 20 buildings and hundreds of uh, supported housing units and also a range of support services of the type you were mentioning, employment, education, really focused on getting people connected to the community. So 
Uh, as part of the advocacy work the organization does, uh, Community Access founded the Mental Health Film Festival, uh, which is really meant to highlight uh, mental health awareness and um, encourage people to tell stories in their own words um, in a creative way. Um, so the festival has been going on for uh, five years now. And uh, talk a little about, there's also something called Changing Minds. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so uh, Changing Minds is uh, sort of the newest aspect of the Mental Health Film Festival. It's sort of born out of it and is a, uh, a, a film festival and film project um, on its own uh, focused on youth and, the, uh, and youth mental health concerns. Uh, what's so special and unique about Changing Minds is that the films are all um, focused on mental health and all made by uh, young people themselves. So um, in so many cases, uh, stories about mental health, um, especially focused on young folks, are told about young people uh, or young people are receiving messages like from other groups or uh, from, from adults. So I'm primarily saying like, this is what mental health means. This is what mental health should, mental health care should look like. And with Changing Minds, it's really uh, an opportunity for young folks to say in their own words, in a creative way, using artistic mechanisms, uh, this is what mental health really means to me, and these are the concerns that matter in my life. And we've so been, the project. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and we've been talking about this throughout the show, and that's what's so interesting is I see these films also and these projects as a way to help break down stigma associated with mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that both the Mental Health Film Festival at large and Changing Minds um, in particular are focused on, I think, what could be called mental health literacy and awareness and creating a sort of community dialogue. So one thing that I can say about Changing Minds is that it's having its first uh, festival, a series of screenings, um, this next Saturday, um, October 19th. And the, the project is a lot more than just the opportunity to see the films. Um, it's all October 19th at Village Cinema. Um, but the project exists throughout the year, and there are many opportunities to uh, see these films um, at local libraries, um, in schools. We're partnering with different organizations to have screenings in schools where young folks can watch films talking about mental health from their peers, and then perhaps be inspired to create work of their own. And and also, from what I understand, you know, at, at something like the film festival, it's not just you're going there and seeing films, but there's also Q and A's uh, with the filmmakers and also the actors, which helps to further educate and inform folks. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think what's what's important about it is it's not just a totally passive experience, like you just go sit in the theater and sort of receive, but it's all about generating uh, a dialogue in the community. And so by having the filmmakers present, um, we're able to have an opportunity for people to ask more, learn more about the experience, and hopefully uh, inspire other people to think about ways to um, say what they want to say about mental health 
and mental health concerns in their life. Um, hopefully through the medium of film or through some other creative artistic mechanism or in any other way. Um, and the festival itself is a nice opportunity to connect with community access, learn more about the resources and opportunities that the organization provides in New York City, um, and, and start to get involved in something. Can you talk a little about what is in store at the festival this year? Any uh, the types of films that people might see? I mean, I know it's not just all features, but also documentaries and shorts. Any? Can you give us a sense of the range of films and even a specific one or two uh, that you think might uh, resonate more with folks? Yeah, so the, the festival, um, including Changing Minds, is, as you said, um, pretty broad-ranging. There are animated films, there are some that are documentary style, there's some that are quite comedic, some that are more intense in their themes and representation. Um, and I think, you know, uh, focusing for a moment on, on Changing Minds, there's one film in particular that I'm really uh, fond of and excited to see on the big screen on, on the 19th. It's called Again with Feeling by Max Blanche. And that one uh, is made by a young filmmaker on a very limited budget, um, but beautifully uh, uh, shows what it's like to be living with depression in ways that I think like, you know, an essay or um, some other mechanism really couldn't. Um, so he really cleverly utilized the visual medium to um, create uh, an impression of what it feels like to be sort of isolated in having concerns about mental health as a young person and being unsure about how to reach out to people. And it's an ultimately uplifting uh, message, um, but does show some um, tough realities as well. Uh, so that's one of my favorites that we're going to screen. Uh, so, Justin, how can people find out more about uh, about the film festival, about Changing Minds, uh, and, um, you know, just give us the website and also a little more just about the schedule or uh, and the dates, just remind our, our listeners. Sure thing. So the festival is October 19th um, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Village Cinema, which is then followed by a 6 to 9 p.m. series of screenings, uh, um, which is the Changing Minds portion. And uh, all of the information about the festival, um, both the main mental health film festival and Changing Minds, are available online. So you can go to uh, mentalhealthfilmfest.nyc. Um, also at NYC uh, MH Film Fest on Twitter. And uh, there's a full list of all of the films that are available um, and all of the screening times as well. And one thing that also I should say that I forgot to mention earlier that's, I think, really important about this process and creating this is that uh, the films are by people who have experienced mental health challenges you know, and the process of uh, curating the films and putting on the festival is all focused on a peer-based perspective. So this isn't, uh, you know, a selection based on a group of people who have no connection and are just thinking this is what people should see, but it's really uh, from start to finish, from the filmmaking through the curating 
through the act of putting it on, really based on people who are uh, in this community and are concerned about getting the, the message out. Justin Barron, Director of Community Engagement Services at Community Access, thanks so much for joining me here on City Watch tonight. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, we are going to, we've got about another five minutes. And uh, one thing I'm just looking for in my notes because I was writing down a number of statistics before. Yes, uh, as Celeste mentioned in her segment about World Men- Mental Health Day, uh, uh, she cited a number of statistics. And this year's theme for Mental Health Day, it's focused on suicide prevention. And just some of the stats that I had jotted down for the World Health Organization, because you may not realize the extent of this. I mean, uh, we talked a little with Donovan Richards, the councilman, about what's going on in the NYPD and the, the nine officers who've taken their lives this year, which exceeds its almost double uh, the average five every year within the NYPD. But much more broadly, globally, every 40 seconds, every 40 seconds, someone loses their life to suicide. And that is close to 800,000 people who die every year across the globe. This according to, to the World Health Organization. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among our young people between ages 15 and 29 years old. And, and there's also indications that for every uh, adult who died by suicide, there have been more, uh, more than 20 others who actually attempted suicide. Um, it, it's just a staggering amount. And we've talked with a number of guests today about issues around mental illness, I also jotted down a few numbers, that, and I'll post it on our uh, Driving Forces Facebook page as well. Um, but some numbers that are, are important for you to have if you uh, are encountering uh, issues of depression, if you're thinking of suicide, if, if you know someone that, you want, uh, that might be going through troubling times, uh, that you want to share it with them. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. In New York City, there's also a program called NYC Well, and that gives free confidential crisis counseling and mental health and substance misuse support and referrals. And that number is one eight eight six excuse me six nine two nine three five five one eight 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 NYC Well. And also on a state level, the Office of Mental Health at OMG dot ny dot gov that it has basically a directory where you can find a number of uh, the 40 you know the 4500 programs inpatient and outpatient across the state um, if you're looking for a program near you they also have a toll-free number 1-800-597-8481 i will post these on our facebook page later on tonight but i also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today and um, as I mentioned earlier, that next week I'm going to be having two uh, special guests, an author and an essayist, uh, for the book Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. Uh, this is an incredible book. We've gotten 10 copies of this book for our dedicated BAI listeners. If you become a BAI buddy in the name of this show, City Watch, and you call up, you we will send you a copy of this book. We only got 10 copies and I, I, it's a, you're going to hear, a le- if you're on the fence, next Sunday, you're going to hear them talk about this book. I'm sure you're going to want it. But if you become a BAI buddy where you just give a recurring donation of 5 10 
15 $20 a month, uh, this is what I do, um, to support BAI, we will send you this book. Uh, the number that you can call is 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. You can also go online and pledge at give to, that is the number two, WBAI.org. Or you can just take out your smartphone and text WBAI to 41444. It's really important. I mean, this station, if if you think of all the hours you listen to this station, not just in a week, but over the course of a month or course of a year, that's hundreds of hours uh, where you're coming to us for, for progressive voices, for diverse voices, for the latest news, for wonderful music, for Max Schmidt, who's going to be up next in just in, in another Uh, seven or eight minutes. Um, If these people have made a difference in your life and these shows, uh, become a BAA buddy. Just take that step. If you've been on the fence before, now's the time to do it as part of our fundraising drive. 516-620-3602. And if you become a BAI buddy, please say it's for City Watch and that you'd like a copy of Waging Peace in Vietnam. Next Sunday, again, I'll be joined by one of the authors and one of the essayists. So I'm hoping that you'll tune in then as well. I would like to thank our guests today, New York City Council Member Donovan Richards, uh, who introduced the measure to strengthen mental health services for members of the NYPD, David Woodlock, President and CEO of the Institute for Community Living, and also Justin Barron, Director of Community Engagement Services at Community Access, and also the special news segment by the wonderful Celeste Katz. I'm glad that she is still part of the WBAI family. And if you missed any part of the show, visit us at WBAI.org. You just go to Programs and Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. And you can always follow me, Jeff Simmons, on Twitter at Jack Heights, because I live in Jackson Heights, Jack Heights. And City Watch can also be found on Twitter at City Watch, WBAI, and on Facebook. Thank you for joining me today. And please stay tuned for the Golden Age of Radio with Max Schmidt. Mm-hmm.